Salam Ajamion Aziz, welcome to another podcast, this time a very special podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Kamyar. And I'm your other host, Rustin. Uh, this one is special for the reason that we're actually all in the same room, uh, Rustin and I, for the first time in many weeks, and actually the first podcast ever in the same room, right? Yeah, I don't think you've, you've noticed, but due to our amazing editing skills, but we've been 6,000 6, miles away for most of the podcasts. Yeah, this has actually been a good way to, to keep the hearts close, even <laughs> if the, the people are far. But okay, we'll, we'll save the romance maybe for another, another podcast. We have a very special guest today who's also in the room for us. So yay for everyone being together. Uh, Rustin, do you want to do a little introduction? Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to have uh, Nahid Siamdust in the room today. Thanks for joining us, Nahid. Thank you for having me. For our listeners, if you don't know Nahid, Nahid is a postdoctoral associate and lecturer at Yale University's Macmillan Center. Uh, she's also the inaugural Essan Yarshater Fellow. For those of you who don't know, the late Essan uh, Yarshater was a very famous Iranologist who just passed away recently. Mm-hmm. We're happy to have you in the room with us. And we're here to talk to her about her book that just came out in 2017 with Stanford University Press called Soundtrack of the Revolution, The Politics of Music in Iran. I'm excited to uh, listen to some good tunes today. How about you, Kamyar? I'm excited and I know all the mixtape music lovers have to be excited So let's also mention that we're going to accompany this um, this podcast with some other ways to hear some of the songs that uh, we're going to be discussing today. So read the description uh, to find out how to get at that. Yeah. So uh, Nahid. Um, Can I just say, sure. you guys mentioned the mixtape. I just want to say you guys have been doing some amazing work. I've been following Ajam and I've been listening to the mixtapes and I'm super excited to be on your podcast, your newest venture. Oh my gosh. This is the first time we've had a guest flatter us like this. <laughs> Blushing right now. <laughs> But seriously. Lots flirty, thank you. Okay, uh, yeah, so about your book. Yeah, we can't handle the comments. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, uh, like, oh, it's getting hot. Blushing, yeah. Woo! Okay. Uh, yeah, so what I really enjoy about your book is, you know, it's about the interplay of music and politics in Iran, but you kind of take a really a long historical view on it. You don't just start with the revolution as this departure point, but you kind of talk about the role of music in the revolutionary struggle of Iran throughout the 20th century. So I was wondering if you could kind of uh, give us a little bit of background about 20th century music and politics in Iran before we, we move on. Sure. So, of course, I had to sort of take it back to the Constitutional Revolution uh, when a man by the name of Arif Qazvini, who many of your listeners will know about, a sort of bard and poet of the time, really uh, politicized music in a way that hadn't existed prior to that. So, he took, you know, he wrote his own poetry and took also the poetry of other people, but mostly wrote his own poetry and uh, came from a, the, the tradition of Sheda, a poet sort of slightly before him. And uh, sat down on his tar and sang those mm, that poetry, those lyrics to music. And with that really created the format of the political concert, which was a very influential at the time of the Constitutional Revolution. When you see images of the time of, you know, politicians and, you know, uh, uh, literati and musicians and all these people who were really active toward the Constitutional Revolution, you see oftentimes sort of Arif Ghazvini either in the center or to the side somewhere, but he became the voice of that of that movement. And um, leading up to the 1979 revolution, a lot of the musicians of the time, uh, especially the 
Chavosh group, the Chavosh cultural group, they really drew on that tradition coming from from the constitutional era. Uh, it wasn't a completely sort of continuous tradition because it was broken up by you know, the Reza Shah period and his authoritarianism. And um, shout out to Hushang Shahabi. He has a piece about how, uh, you know, we uh, basically the Tasnif was discontinued. This political, short, rhythmical format was discontinued and Reza Shah really preferred the ballad and that, that was the kind of music that, that he would allow much more Western influence than uh, what previously existed. And so the Tasnif kind of went a bit underground and, um, and then sort of fizzled out um, until the... You know, Chavushis came along when uh, in the 70s when traditional Persian or classical Persian music, as I call it mostly in the book, was thought to be um, sort of backward and um, um, out of it. And people really didn't have in this this famous uh, um, uh, conversation between Shamlu and Reza Lotfi, where Shamlu says, what has Persian classical music ever done for us? And, you know, Lotfi responds. And so anyway, it was thought to be out of it. But then these Chavushis, who, m many of whom, or I think all of whom were working for state radio at the time, um, Black Friday happened in September 1978, when at the time people thought many thousands, this was sort of the rumor in, the, you know, in Tehran, that many thousands of protesters had been shut down. Subsequently, we now know that the numbers were much smaller, but at the time, um, that's that's what was believed, and um, not not to you know minimize the number of deaths of this event, but at the time it was thought to be a much much sort of bigger event in terms of loss of uh, life uh, that we now know it to be. Uh, but anyway, so these Chavushis, they all resigned from state radio, and uh, the the letter of resignation was signed by Muhammad Zashajarian. The letter, I believe, was written you know between all of them, mostly sort of with the influence of Muhammad Zalotfi and also Saye, the poet Saye. Um, they resigned from state radio and went underground. And you know, when we talk about underground musicians, they were, uh, you know, the very sort of definition of underground musicians. They went into Lotfi's basement and started making this revolutionary music. Some of the songs, um, you know, "Give Me My Gun," "Tofangyam uh, Robede," "Give Me My Gun," so I can get underway and you know help my brothers in this revolutionary fervor and revolutionary effort. Um, and other uh, songs such as. Um, uh, Iran, Sarai, Omid, they were um, created in Lotfi's basement. And um, I talked to Shajarian himself and Lotfi at the time and others um, belonging to the Chavushi group. And the way they would distribute their, their music was to take their cassette tapes to, uh, you know, different squares in, in, in Tehran and other cities and distribute them. And um, so anyway, just to say, you know, that this, this tradition of um, revolutionary Persian classical music of turning the golobol bol around to have political meaning, this did go back to the constitutional revolution. So you can't really explain this incredible revolutionary movement in music without understanding what happened, um, you know, 80 years prior at the time of the constitutional revolution. And so also when Shajarian, uh, up until recently, until he, he was banned from giving concerts, live concerts in Iran, and he was able to continue... Um, uh, you know, publishing albums, but after 2009, he was banned from giving concerts. And uh, but up 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 to that point, uh, Shajarian was really continuing that very tradition because his concerts were one of the only spaces where people, total strangers, could come together face to face and express this political content. Um, you know, short of sort of political protests or uh, otherwise, Shajarian's concert were really a very politically heightened uh, sort of. Um, gathering of 
of people. So I go back in time to trace some of the traditions that I look at in post-revolutionary Iran. Again, when you look at, you know, um, post-revolutionary pop music, I had to take it back to the 1960s and 70s um, of the pre-revolutionary era to understand what the what the precedence of this pop music was and what were these younger post-revolutionary musicians drawing on for their own music. And of course, there's a whole lot of debate on how that music came to be uh, uh, you know, sanctioned or approved by the new Islamic Republic after a near 20-year ban. And um, so we can get into that if you want to. But again, for that, I had to go back and for other things too. I guess something then that um, I think I want to ask about before we go into specific uh, songs and musics is, you know, when working on this, to what extent did you feel that you know, across the different genres and types of music, people themselves um, sort of felt the connections between what they were making. Because I think sometimes for people who aren't really deeply familiar with, like, Persian classical music, you know, Muzri, Sonati, they sort of, it's hard to connect it to, you know, this very political history of, like, certain tasnifs and certain performers because in some ways it, it can seem like, especially now, kind of like a state-approved music in certain ways. But then at the same time, uh, the more, we'll call it radically sounding music of the 60s and 70s actually has similar sort of political roots, as you're saying. So mm-hmm. do you think that that cross-pollination is acknowledged, or how do you think it, it relates to, to each other and across the genres? That is a fantastic question. So um, across the genre, I mean, I... I so when it comes to uh, to a tasnif like Morghe Sahar, people are very aware of it. They understand that Shah Jaryan himself in the interview with me, um, I had several interviews with me, one of the interviews with me, he said, I said, you know, why did you conceive of doing this at the time that you did it? He first performed it in 1990. Um, it was because Amortizane Dawood, the Jewish um, a composer of the song, had just passed away and he was giving a concert in LA, I believe. And so that's when he first decided to perform this song. And he said, you know, I'd I'd just been waiting for the right moment to perform this song because I knew that it was, um, it resonated across society, that it was, it expressed sentiments and uh, demands that people still had. I was just waiting for the right time. And it just seemed like, you know, right after the Iran-Iraq war, when, uh, you know, Nadavud passed away was a, was a good moment. And, um, People connected those dots. They understood that this was a tradition hailing from before because other musicians such as Ehengame Akhavan, even Farhad, had actually covered Morka Sahar. So it's a song that's really um, that really resonates uh, with a lot of people. And, you know, if you Google the song in Persian, uh, I mean, Google the song in, uh, I mean, the Morka Sahar in Persian, you'll see that there are, at this point, a lot of articles written about um, its origins in uh, it was written by Malik Roy Bahar in 1920s to oppose uh, Reza Shah's authoritarianism.
let's move up to 1978, 1979. So, then I mean, we'll move back. Then we'll yeah. move back. <laughs> Just from some of my master's research, it was on, let's say, leftist guerrilla organizations and uh, looking at uh, visual but also musical production. And so I was looking at, you know, these posters made for these musical concerts in Tehran and Mashhad by, you know, the Fadayan or by the Mojahideen about, you know, getting people together and, and singing these revolutionary songs but connecting it back to uh, mm-hmm. the constitutional period and mm-hmm. um, kind of this whole like right? This uh, we will continue the struggle is a very common theme so we know that music played this huge role in kind of mobilizing mm-hmm. people for 1979 but um, as you describe in your book the, the role of music enters into this precarious stage right immediately after the revolution and I was wondering if you can explain kind of the, the new Islamic Republic's stance on music and kind of how there was this development from, you know, music becoming this important rallying tool to almost this quarantining of particular types of music. Yeah, it is really fascinating. As you said, you know, the music was so important for the revolutionary movement and for the success of the revolution. And yet, uh, only a few months into, you know, the founding of the Islamic Republic, um, in July, <clears throat> excuse me, 1979, Khomeini, in a, in a speech to Radio Darya at the Caspian, he says, if you want your youth to be, um, if you want to have a righteous youth, if you don't want to corrupt your youth, eliminate music completely. Music is like opium. It corrupts people. It corrupts the, it's like opium for the masses, right? Um, the, the <clears throat> sort of, again, drawing on, uh, on a socialist communist um, um, sort of tradition. And um, right away, um, there, I mean, already, you know, as soon as Khomeini returns to Iran, of course, this religious caste is the most prominent segment of the revolutionaries um, in terms of uh, their leadership of the movement. And so before the leftists and everybody else is, you know, pretty much eliminated, it takes uh, a couple of years or so. Um, but the sensitivity around music in Islam was, of course, well known. And so people were already sort of a little touchy around the subject of music and um, uh so, you know, La Lazar, as we know, a lot of the uh, cabarets and cafes and, you know, uh, not to mention, of course, cinemas and other mu- sites of musical enjoyment or other kinds of entertainment, they were ransacked and destroyed soon after the revolution. And then Khomeini makes this statement and people take it to mean that any kind of instrumental music, at least instrumental, uh, it's a little complicated, but Western classical music is not problematic. It's People understood that to be the case because Khomeini... Made a um, made a statement about that about uh, Morteza Hanon's music. Actually, somebody asked him, you know, is this music sort of okay? It's uh, instrumental music, and he says it's okay. And people apply that to other kinds of instrumental music, including Western classical music. Um, but people understand that mean to me no instrumental music, certainly nothing that was anything like the pre-revolutionary pop music, right? Uh, that whole scene uh, was now seen as having been completely degenerate and facilitating all kinds of anti-Islamic, anti-revolutionary behavior, such as the sexes mixing, consuming alcohol, doing all kinds of things that the revolution, this westernization that the revolution was going to uproot from Iranian society. Um, so they're a bit sort of, you know wondering at state radio and television, what do we do about this? And so the first uh, official, officially approved kinds of music that we hear on state radio, that we see on state television, it's all march music. It's, you know, the kinds of Rezad Wigari's Allah, 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 Iran, Iran, Iran. Allah, 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 Allah,
that was apparently the first song to be broadcast on state radio once it was properly taken over by the officials of you know this new this new um, system who had been or, sort of ordained and approved by um, clerics higher up. And um, the, the you know this tense uh, of atmosphere for music continues for a little bit until not long after Khomeini's own announcement, Morteza Motahari, one of Khomeini's proteges, he's one of his favorite proteges, is assassinated. And in commemoration of his passing, people within state radio produce the song. <laughs> They actually use musical passages that are very reminiscent of some of the heavier pop, classical pop precedents of pre-revolutionary Iran. So somebody... Uh, like Hayedit, like her songs. Um, they use musical, instrumental music, these passages in this song, and they want to test the waters with Khomeini himself since he is the ultimate source. And uh, they, they, they play the song for Khomeini, and um, Khomeini uh, asks to see the makers of this song, and in their presence says, I don't cry much, but I cried when I heard this song. This is the most beautiful song that I've ever heard, and if you continue producing music like this, I will support you. And that was a really real turnaround for policymaking on music because from that moment on, people understood that, okay, so there was such, uh, you know, ambiguity and uh, unclarity around music. They understood, okay, so it's not just about instrumental music. It's about hadaf, like what is the um, goal of that music, right? If it's committed music, again, another you know, communist notion. Um, if it's committed music, if it's committed art, then it's permitted of course, that didn't mean that, you know, from that point onward, all kinds of dance music was green-lighted, but at least instrumental music in and of itself was no longer problematic. And um, and um, Mohammad Golzar, who's the brother of Mohammad, uh, of Ali Akbar Golpaigani, uh, Golpaigani being a famous pre-revolutionary singer, he still is alive and has even published a couple of albums in post-revolutionary Iran, but he was probably at the time of the revolution more famous than Shajarian for sure. Um, he sang in the Golha radio program and, and performed in some of these cabarets, which is why he was, he didn't, he, he, he became sort of blacklisted with the, with the revolution. Uh, but anyway, his brother became really, was, was with the Islam, uh, you know, Islamic revolutionaries. And so he um, started singing for radio, um, for state radio and television soon after the revolution, has sung, um, I think he's, his voice covers more revolutionary songs than anybody else's. I forget the exact number of songs he's sung. Uh, but anyway, he, he sings this song and he, um, he retells this very encounter with Khomeini in, in, in uh, one of the, in a press conference that he had. I just think it's so funny that like half of Iran's policy in the 1980s was just like getting on Khomeini's good side like I think I mean this is the same story with the cinema industry right like it's just like Khomeini sees Gov he sees the cow and all of a sudden he's like wait a minute cinema's actually pretty cool it's transgender rights I was just thinking about that you know I mean it really hinged on that woman uh, Maryam Chichi getting his permission to have a 
an op- a sex change operation, and now Iran is yeah the world's second capital for that. Yeah, and some um, kind of old school statecraft, right? When you could actually get an audience with the the leader of a country. Right. You know, I was talking to Kayvon uh, Harris for his podcast, and he, you know, we we kind of mentioned this idea of like, oh, you know, like how much of our idea of you know uh, politics in Iran is determined on like what Khomeini. Uh, you know, said, but actually what your story shows and also the story with cinema is that like um, a lot of it is actually people pushing back. Thank you, yes. People actually, like uh, these bureaucrats and these members of these different ministries coming and trying to push back and trying to change Khomeini's mind about particular things. So there is this idea of right. exchange going between, you know, the state bureaucracy and, you know, the figure of Khomeini himself. Not just Khomeini, other officials as well. I recount, I don't know if I can move on with... Sure. Yeah, 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 sure, yeah, of course. Chronologically, I'll move on and then we can go back if you want. And um, But I recount in another part of the book how pop music actually became approved to, after a near 20-year ban, right? And at the time, nobody thought pop music would ever be. That was, you know, the scene that was just never to come back to a, to a, to an Islamic Iran. And really, again, um, there at that point, and I think even today, there are a lot of conspiracy theories about why they finally allowed pop music to come back in. And again, I think it's a really sort of bottom-up process. It's not a top-down process where they chose singers. I don't know if, how much you know about this, but yeah, people yeah. generally believe, you know, the Islamic Republic officials, they went looking for people who have voices similar to, you know, Daryush and Ebi and whoever, and created this pop music that was wholesome and good and that they could control. It was a, it was a content that they could control, produced from within the Islamic Republic for, for, for the Islamic youth, Right. And uh, and they won the youth over because of the similarity of voices. But then when you look into it, which is what I did, um, you you find out, or I found out, that Khashoyar Etemadi, the man who is credited with having produced the first post-revolutionary pop song, Manoto Darakto Barun, actually based on an Ahmad Shamlu poem, he you know he had been trying for years to. These were young kids coming out, the first generation to graduate from the music academy. So they weren't really doing this, or they weren't doing this for ideological reasons. They were doing this for careerist reasons. They were graduating from music school and wanted to have careers, lives, making money as musicians, right? And uh, he kept producing these songs. At the same time, they were, you know, in their late teens or early 20s, there were young people with an outward sort of look on the uh, on the world and of there being young people in Iran. They, they weren't as bound by all these discourses that, right, came, led to the revolution and soon afterwards. And Khashar Etemadi kept uh, taking songs to state television, to the music office of state television, saying, you know, this is, you know, uh, to try to get permits. And year after year, they would reject a permit um, with, you know, he showed me some of the pieces of paper that he got with green ink saying, um, uh, <laughs> reject him based on the fact that his voice was too similar to Daryush. And it's true, like he, his voice has a real similarity to Daryush's voice. Uh, it's not just the quality of his voice, it's the way he sings. Clearly, this guy is just in love with Daryush and is imitating some sort of past, right? There's nostalgia in the way, in the cadence of his cadence of his voice and so on. Um, and so finally, Somebody, uh, there's a change in the leadership in the music office at state television. This guy, Ali Malam Damghani, he takes over. He happens to be himself a poet and a confidant of uh, Imam of um, Ayatollah Khamenei at that point. 
and is able really to uh, has the kind of political capital and the kind of social capital that it takes to say, you know, I like this music, um, and I'm just going to try to see if I can do something about this. And the rumor is um, that he took this to Ayatollah Khomeini and said, look. Um, uh, can you see if this is okay? And Khamenei is then to have, uh, said to have taken to you know some high-ranking clerics in Qom and elsewhere, and really gotten approval uh, internally to greenlight this kind of music. Ali Malam Damani, whom I spoke to, he himself totally just kept mixing up Daryush and Khashar Etemadi. <laughs> he just couldn't. He just couldn't keep it straight. It's like who's that young man who you know who did Bui Gandom? I was like Daryush. It's like. No, Daryush, Daryush, yeah, he came to us and I was like, but Daryush was before the revolution. Um, and so what I think, you know, what there was a lot of push coming from below and then finally there was somebody in a state of, uh, you know, in a, in a powerful position who could actually do something about it. And um, uh, anyway, I can also go a little bit more. There are also, you know, it's it's also not that straightforward. There's some other elements involved as well. So Daryush was a political singer. So if anybody was anybody's, you know, anybody was able to break that barrier, it probably would have been Daryush's voice rather than anybody else's, because um, he was actually kept in high regard by a lot of the revolutionaries, including Islamic, uh, you know, republic revolutionaries at the time. No, that's interesting you bring that up because I think the conspiracy theory about Iranian pop music sometimes circulates more in the diaspora than any sort of narrative with agency from the musicians or singers themselves. I think uh, people often have heard it or for those who aren't familiar with the conspiracies in the Iranian community. Yeah, it's just this idea that the state decided that they need their own, you know, counterculture weapon and just sort of created these these singers out of thin air. But, uh, you know, as you're saying, um, it's not like music education or production totally halted, mm-hmm. you know, after the revolution. Right. Sure, it had gone underground or didn't have state support, but obviously there were still musicians there, as you're suggesting, that wanted to play and create music and while there was a role of the state kind of top-down eventually allowing it, we mm-hmm. can't really deny that these musicians were there and trying to create this music. So I think that's an excellent point uh, for, for our listeners. the only ones who were trying to get it officially aired. There are, of course, a whole scene of underground uh, you know, musicians, even throughout the 80s, through the hardest sort of, you know, most uh, devastating sort of post-revolutionary decade, but also throughout the 90s. Uh, but those musicians were mostly doing alternative Sort of, they were doing rock music basically, and they weren't even trying to get permits. But that scene was also happening, and eventually, sort of percolated and you know came to the surface in in the late '90s, early 2000s because of the internet and other things that happened. The Khatami period, which allowed all kinds of opening that hadn't existed prior to that. Do we move to the next era? What do you think? I mean, do you have any other questions? I mean, I'm, I'm down to talk about uh, rock and, and rap and all the things corrupting our youth, yeah? So, um, if... Uh, I guess the only thing is, do we talk about um, diaspora music and Tehrangelis briefly? Um, I guess just I, a lot of people, I think, um, especially now that it's become so cool to like mm-hmm. this sort of like mm-hmm. immediate post-revolutionary Iranian music and... Mm-hmm. You know, Kanye West is sampling Gugush. And okay. I heard a Kurosh Yagmai song the other day on like a Hulu show I was watching. No way. Um, I guess if 
maybe just talk about what were the um, the conditions that sort of spawned that uh, that era of music, and I guess the material conditions are particularly interesting. That what gave us all that music. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, you know, as uh, most of your listeners, I imagine, will know, um, with the revolution, this a large part of this pop music industry in Iran sort of transplanted itself into uh, California, L.A., and hence, uh, you know, the moniker Tehrangelis for, for Los Angeles, and created studios. Uh, I was actually not too long ago in L.A. and spoke to Manucher uh, Bibian, who was very much behind uh, some of the record labels in Iran of this pop music who produced people like Haida and, and others. Um, and uh, he was also big sort of in the, you know, um, and, uh, concert hall or disco, uh, uh, you know, scene, and um, they they set up their lives in uh, Los Angeles and, st- and continued producing these music, uh, th- this music under very hard circumstances. Um, one has to sort of acknowledge, uh, you know, when you talk to these people there. I spoke to Bibian and a few others. They really talk about what a hard period it was for them outside of Iran, especially in the U.S. with a hostage crisis going on where they had to, you know, constantly sort of conceal their identities as Iranians because, um, you know, people were no, Iran was no friend of the U.S. at the time for sure. Uh, I wonder, you know, and hasn't really been ever since, um, unfortunately. Anyway, um, so, you know, they, they set up studios, they set up uh, these television stations to record this music, and they broadcast on local programs to their own, um, uh, you know, people within California and so on, and continued making this. As far as I'm concerned, um, the nostalgia that's connected with that period of people, I mean, Koshi Armoy is really sort of from pre-revolutionary Iran, and then, um, because he um, actually didn't leave i mean he stayed um and uh, i mean there was some travel and not there constantly but um but as far as i'm concerned you know the nostalgia about uh, gugush who also stayed for 20 years and only left 20 years after the revolution but a lot of these musicians shahram shapari for example you know as somebody who grew up in the 1980s iran is that my childhood is completely through and through colored by that music. So, you know, it's, it's, it's this sort of schizophrenic um, childhood of knowing, you know, the aerial bombardments in Tehran, having to hide, you know, having all the windows taped up with uh, aluminum foil and, and, you know, and other crazy like memories of uncles taking us to the rooftop to see the like planes that were dropping bombs on us just as if like it had become like so a fun outing, I guess. <laughs> Teenage uncles. Um, and uh, and then these you know these uh, birthday parties nonstop birthday parties other parties where all this music was played and uh, you know from again from Shohre to Leila Furuhar to Shaham Shapare to Gugush to Haide to you know Sator and um, I think that m- much more than creating this producing these this music for their own communities outside of Iran whether it was in LA or elsewhere in the US or Paris or God knows where you know whoever was listening to this music still and was basically the majority of Iranians um, they were this this was sort of a lifeline for a lot of Iranians inside Iran who needed that space who needed to hold on to something that uh, that did bring joy to them. You know, this music was very joyful music. It's the kind of music that, you know, makes people jump up and dance. And uh, so for me, especially as a child, and I remember this having that kind of effect on the grown-ups too, it really provided the space where people could be, 
you know, could for an hour or two really step outside of their actual realities, which are quite harsh uh, in a lot of ways, economic and, you know, losing loved ones and so on. And, um, and, uh, you know, be joyous. I think that's so interesting to bring up um, kind of that transnational link because mm. I guess growing up in L.A., for people who don't know I grew up in L.A., for me it, was, it always felt so rooted. I think also being a child, it was hard to make sense of like the music I was hearing or when my parents would drag me to Cabo de Tehran as a kid to understand that it was actually like, a, you know, connected to and also to be listened to by people in, you know, Iran itself, the country, because... In many ways, especially I think after a few years, you see how rooted the musicians had to become in, in Los Angeles. I remember this, this funny story when I got older and started playing guitar. I had this like white American guitar teacher and his friend had came by. This is Mike and like Jeff or something. And he goes, oh, come here. You're Iranian. And I'm like, oh, you, you know what Iran is? Like uh, a white guy knows. He's like, oh, yeah, I played guitar in Daryush's band, in Omid's band. And I realized, too, getting older, you would see these musicians with American session musicians on stage. And because everyone in L.A. is dying to find musical work, like, it was actually pretty common to have, like, non-Iranian people on stage. And mm -hmm. in this strange way, you know, we have... Sure, I, uh, we, of course, understand it as, as Iranian music, but the locality of Los Angeles and America in some ways seeps in so deeply into the sounds and mm -hmm. how the music changed that I guess um, it's just interesting to see the different sides of, of the experience and the nostalgia. Because mm -hmm. for some people, like you're saying, it's the nostalgia of actually Iran in the 80s and 90s, but for other people, it's diaspora at that right. same time. Right. Yeah. For others like you, you're like, get me away from this. What's going on? Yeah, I think as a kid, I was like, this is so strange, you know, but I, I think uh, as I, I got... the American. Yeah, well, you know, actually, as I got older, uh, for getting personal, I started to really appreciate it and I kind of wish I knew. Yeah, it comes with, I was, I was like, oh, you know, how I was actually, I guess, at a Aussie concert, you know, but I didn't really, or I think it was a vegan concert, I don't remember, but I was so little, I didn't understand, you know. Aussie would be amazing if yeah. you managed to, yeah. But I think actually one thing that um, struck me, and I guess kind of ties to what's going on next, is that I think as a child, and also growing up still, it, it became harder in some ways to appreciate that post-revolutionary music as opposed to what you were saying, you know, the big ones that are famous now amongst all types of mm -hmm. foreigners and, you know, hipsters of general types mm -hmm. is this kind of nostalgic 70s sound, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the earlier Gugush tracks. Mm -hmm. But then you sort of have this period where um, production values changed and you have full bands and full instrumentation. And I always found that a little bit harder to connect to. So right around the age where I think I was understanding mm -hmm. and appreciating like the changes in Iranian music, I sort of, I couldn't find what to latch onto, you know. Mm -hmm. But then I think something that really reignited my interest right at the perfect time was, was actually Iranian hip hop. So that's something, um, I guess I'd like to know more about just what is the angle that you looked into to the history of, of hip hop in Iran? Sure. Yeah. So I wanted to know why, um, I mean, the, you know, the book is, um, tries to sort of cover certain periods, chronological, looking at um, four different genres of music, Persian classical music, alternative and rock, hip hop, um, per, um, state approved pop music, and then, um, and then uh, hip hop. And uh, in each of those genres, I highlight one musician, but I also look at a ton of other musicians. And all of this is based on 
you know, living in Iran and talking to all of these musicians and also the, the policymakers, which was still possible at the time when I was living and working there. And um, I think it probably still is, depends on how you do it. But anyway, um, so hip hop, at the, I'm not sure I would still say this, but up until I think 2013 or so, for, for a period of five years, I would say hip hop, Persian rapid Farsi was the most popular genre of music with Iran's youngest. So teenagers and up to sort of early 20s. So it's huge in Iran, right? So huge that, you know, somebody like Hitchcast was a household name. Everybody knew who Hitchcast was. And people who listened to, you know, uh, Rap Farsi, they, they were at least, they could at least among them, you know, across the board sort of, you know, uh, mentioned at least five rappers whose whose music they knew and and they liked. And so I wanted to know how it started, what the influences were, and I chose to look at uh, you know highlight Hitchcast within that genre because he's referred to as you know the godfather of uh, you know Pedakhande Rap Farsi, Pedakhande Farsi, and um, in part because he created Rap Farsi's. Um, flourishing in Iran is really tied up with the um, with with the coming of the internet and people's access to the internet because if you think about it it would have been uh, quite difficult to really get that kind of audience without the internet so Hitchcast was somebody who created the Sef Bistoyek website and invited other rappers to come and post their music there and he says that you know uh, initially the way that a lot of these, there weren't that many actually initially, sort of in the you know um, very late 90s and early 2000s, there weren't that many. But the few who found each other found each other through Orkut. Mm-hmm. I don't oh. know if you know that. <laughs> For our yeah. listeners who I don't, I think it was popular in like South America as well, right? Yeah. It was like a social media network. Is that the precursor to Facebook, basically? After Friendster, before Yahoo 360, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and yeah, somewhere there. Yeah, the yeah, Facebook exactly. type thing. Yeah. I've never heard of any of these it's things. Really, oh you're too young, Arastin. <laughs> younger, but I don't know why I know. Anyways, anyways. So, Orkut. Um, yeah, exactly. It was Orkut. Actually, you know what? <laughs> I don't even know the non-Persian pronunciation. Orkut. I think Orkut. it's supposed to be... Is it Orkut or something? I don't know. Anyway. It's like O-R-K-U-T. Um, but, you know, Orkut, on Orkut, the three most used languages were um, Brazilian, Portuguese, French, and Persian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, the Iranians really made use of Orkut. And um, that's how a lot of, you know, the few rappers who got to know each other, they knew each other there. And they connected over Serf Bistoyek and... Um, you know, sort of tracing the the beginnings of rapper Farsi, and then of course it uh, it um, you know there are a lot of uh, it grows really quickly, quite fast, and um, becomes this music that allows uh, a lot of young Iranians who hadn't quite I have to say you know state approved pop music of the type of Benjamin or uh, Aryan was really popular in Iran too among the youth. Mm-hmm. So, but you know those who were slightly like too cool for school or you know. And I have to say there was a class dimension to it too, you know, the, a lot of the uh, youth from the more working class or lower, uh, you know, socioeconomic background, they 
really identified with rapper Farsi and as Hijkas and Surush Lashkari and Yas and other rappers who I spoke to, they all highlight one aspect of rapper Farsi, which is that it's 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 a genre of music that allows them to say the most in a song, mm-hmm. right? To express what they feel, what they think about, whether it's the given circumstances in society. Later on, it, bec- it becomes quite political as well with somebody like Bahram, for example. Hijkas never quite sort of became explicitly political, but of course, with his track Yeruza Khubmiyan after 2009, um, that was uh, subversive. Um, I think he would call it more like ejtemoi kind of, right? Yeah, Social, yeah, yeah. not Social, political. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting when you think about it because both, you know, Surush Lashkari and Shajarian make use of the same terminology to refer to their music and to their role as musicians. Um, on the one hand, there's the sensitivity toward politics, of course. They don't want to get mixed up with it because it's risky for them as musicians but they also just think that the arts should be or music should be above politics so they and they they use the term um and um mardomi yeah yeah and of course mardomi has you know real connotations um uh, sort of democratic connotations you know mardom solari mardom uh yeah yeah um they use that but anyway um you know with um with the rap Farsi, what I was interested in was, first of all, there's a real gender aspect to it. Rap Farsi is quite um, masculine. masculine. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I think what's interesting that I didn't catch until, I guess maybe it depends also what I've been listening to, but some of the <laughs> recent rappers that are kind of affiliated with like Sef Doyek, that kind of mm-hmm. Hitchcast crew is... You actually hear kind of um, American style, masculine, like I guess this. They say this, right? Yeah. Like this track, like it's fuzzy, yeah. yeah, like sort of calling people, you know, kind of homophobic terms in a kind of American way, uh, or at least something that I wouldn't, that I wasn't as used to from some of like the earlier um, rapid Farsi. Not to say that it's clearly American influence, but. It's very hip hop, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm a man, you're not a man. You know? Right, right. I'll right, repeat right. the words oh here. Yeah. But it's interesting. But I thought what's one of the most um, kind of confusing parts about Rapid Farsi's development, I've always wanted to ask someone, is it's in many ways kind of one of the things where you see the fall of Tehrangeles because the actual American role is not very strong. And just from what I know from people kind of mm-hmm. close to, to Surush and them, is it was actually like Reveal and some of these British rappers, grime, a grime rapper from London that mm-hmm. went to Iran and did, you know, that, that really famous song, uh, Inas Tiri Pemor. به نام خداوند جان آفرین حکیم سخن بر زبان آفرین خیابونا با ما آشنا قدمامون روش و موندگاره کی نفس بکشه یا چه نه رزم روزگاره بچه ها تو خیابونن نمازی یادش نمیمونن چون که میدونن زندگی یه خیابونی چه خطر داره 
کسی نیست که بکس رو بر از در داره قدم همون چه سنگینن بعضی را میری تیری به بکسمون رو همینجا میگی همه ها به کمر زیر لب این جبلت رو میخونیم خدا تو جنگل آسفال بذار زنده بمونیم درخت های آهنی حیبون های انسان ما رسم شاخبازی رو تو خیجابو میکنن نبا بچه هامون هنوز مثل و شاق مستن تو که تیقه ها با این بدن آشنا هستن هنوز هم بکس ما با مرامه میسارن تیری به مرفت و برامه دارم برادری پاهاش رو بینیم تنه آهنی اما نیستش از جنس آدمی خون آریایی داره تو رگم جریان این باشه یه حیاته که هنوز داره شریان ایرانی زندگی میکنم ایرانی میمیرم وقت جنگ از لحه تو دست میگیرم همه ها به دستشونه شروع میشه دست قمه مسونه میرسن هرچن هیر جان کمه It's just it's just so interesting because you would think that it would come straight from, you know, some kind of Los Angeles performer. Although they did have their strange rap tracks in the 90s and 80s, yes. but it's more, I don't know. It, right, Dasta Bolo. Interesting, you know, I, I just want to say on that point that, you know, how you said, you know, San, Sandy and like Martik and even like Shahram Shepard, one of the rappers I spoke to, um, Bahram, um, he, um, actually, I think I got this from um, something he wrote somewhere. He said, you know, All of that we don't count as hip-hop. Hip-hop yeah. begins here in Tehran because hip-hop is not just about the, uh, like you, you know, rhyming, uh, you know, not very sort of, you know, in a certain way. Mm-hmm. It's about a whole scene. It's about a whole attitude, right? And so he says that none of that, you know, counts as hip-hop. Um, but the American influence, I mean, a lot of these, um, you know, these rappers, including Surush and including somebody like Yas, the way they got to know Uh, rap was through cassette tapes brought in by various family members from abroad and it was it was american rap so for yas it was tupac and um you know surush said he heard a whole gamut of rappers and uh decided he really liked it but um but then so they see it they listen to it they link to it But then they don't look to it for inspiration. I think somebody like Yas still did, um, but most others don't. And the reason is that there's such an intuitive um, connection with rap because, you know, poetry is so strong uh, as such a, the strongest art form that we have as Iranians, right? Um, some, uh, the, mo- the strongest sonic art form, at least, that we have. And so there was such an intuitive connection with that, that it was just sort of like copy Danish, you know, like they just took it and ran with it. And, um, and musically, they would still download beats from the internet. That's one way that, yeah. you know, and eventually bit by bit, they started having, you know, young musicians and producers who could create that music. Um, uh, Mahd Yar, for example, who yeah. uh, was behind yeah. of that. Right, right. Who was behind of that, uh, a lot of the Hitchcast uh, music, but. Yeah. Uh, I have like so many more hip hop related things to talk about, but I'm wondering since we covered that so well, is there anything else that we need to to do before we uh, go to some just favorite topics? What do you think, Russell? After reading parts of your book, I was just really excited about rock and alternative music, mm-hmm. especially because you mentioned one of the first concerts mm-hmm. that happened in Iran was in the Russian Orthodox Church mm-hmm. in Tehran with Ohum. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you can just talk about the role of Of venues and concerts in Iran today, especially from 2001 onwards, and and how does uh, something like like rock uh, end up getting a permit? Uh, something that uh, you know, when I think of rock, uh, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's it does carry on this connotation of degenerate Western music <laughs> in terms of of, what, of how like you know a Khomeinist would see it, right? Like the loud guitar music feedback. Can you just like run through the story of how you know rock became this acceptable music that would 
could get played in an Orthodox church out of all places, you know? Okay, cool. Um, yeah, that's one of my favorite stories, actually. You know, Oham getting... They didn't need a permit for the Russian Orthodox um, church because the spaces of minorities uh, and foreign embassies was outside of the jurisdiction of the Islamic Republic. So those were spaces where things could happen. So in foreign embassies or, you know, in a place like the Russian Orthodox Church in Tehran or elsewhere. And um, so they really, you know, Oham had tried to get permits and um, uh, failed and uh, eventually got this, um, you know, uh, collaboration or got, got permission from the Russian Orthodox Church to give a concert there. But it was kind of public, not in so much as, you know, it was promoted in radios and that, but, but people knew about it. And if you knew somebody who knew about it, and you could, you knew the person who sold tickets, you could get a ticket and the tickets were sold and you could get a ticket and go to this concert in 2001 and attend this concert. And I managed to get in touch with somebody who took photographs at this concert. I mean, there's like major headbanging going on. I mean, it's a full on, you know, rock concert. It's pretty cool. Um, and it is sort of a seminal moment uh, as far as, uh, you know, coming in the coming of age narratives of a lot of kids who at that time were in their teens or many of them now abroad. But you can still, if you find somebody who's into music, uh, even though I think there was something like, you know, at most 200 something, about 200 people at that concert, chances are that person will either remember hearing about it or will have been there. It was, you know, it was seen as the sort of birth of the scene in Tehran. Um, so they didn't need a permit but um, they uh, eventually, and a lot of rock musicians did continue trying to get permits. I think one way that people really found out about rock music in in the early stages in Tehran, even though you know people like people like Arashamitui and so on had been practicing it for, had been doing it for a while in private parties, was in early two thousands um, Tehran Avenue, the Tehran Avenue website, started having these music contests and inviting people to put forth their music uh, for these contests, which then people could access online to vote for. And that's one way, you know, uh, Ali Azimi from Radio Tehran, he told me, he said, you know, up to that point, we didn't even realize there were that, we thought we're like, there's us and maybe two other bands, but we realized, wow, they're actually like dozens of bands uh, making rock music in, in Tehran. Uh, eventually, the, you know, um, people from within the you know a ministry of culture and islamic guidance and producers linked to it managed to get uh permits for some rock musicians um reza yazdani is like the perennial rock musician in post revolutionary iran i mean he was i think pretty much the only person giving official rock music concerts was this guy reza yazdani he still does it um but they couldn't really find a way of uh, permitting it more generally for a very long time. And only more recently over the last, I would say, you know, two or three years, um, has that become more public and open. And it's because some younger people connected to the official structures or with Wade Ba, Rabete and so on, uh, they've managed to really get the necessary permits for somebody like Zania or... Um, you know, King Ram, mm -hmm. who unfortunately, of course, is, um, you know, yeah, and um, um, 
So yeah, and and so today you can see rock concerts, but it took a long time, and I think uh, you know we can safely say that event. It was ultimately the work of people from the inside who had connections, and but then you know I think that whole bottom up uh, pressure that we talked about still applies because there were all these young musicians, people from like Palette and Dangsho and so on who were creating this music that was kind of crossing boundary, uh, boundaries, right? It wasn't very clearly like rock. It was sort of incorporated uh, some blues and jazz and some gypsy music. And so, you know, it was this newish genre of music that was keeping, you know, that was pushing for for more pub- publicness, to be more public, and eventually, um, you know, uh, got that kind of publicness. Um. Wow, we covered a lot, and um, we've used a lot of time. I guess the last thing I would like to ask um, is what are some of the interesting, I think, trends and developments right now that uh, now, you know, after you've written the book and you've obviously been uh, sharing your great work with everyone, what are what is just seems interesting now that uh, maybe wasn't the case when you were first working or you weren't able to um, to cover in your research? So when I was first, uh, I mean, when I was working on this, there was a very clear... You know, there were fairly clear categories of uh, permitted music and underground music. And then there was this genre of music that I call hyperground in the book. Uh, and I call it hyperground because it's the music of people like Battlebacks and, uh, you know, Sassy Mankan before he left the country, where through the use of this, um, you know, transnational media circuitry, they were able to actually become famous and make music by performing at private um, events, so weddings and birthdays and so on, make quite good money. So they never got permits from the government. They never got to give concerts, which is how musicians make money. They never got to sell their albums officially, but they became known through this expatria satellite television network and radio stations and so on and were able to make a really good living and became some of the most famous musicians, right? Um, so they were sort of hyperground because the underground, above ground dichotomy didn't really apply to them. They managed to use the media to, um, you know, outdo that whole dichotomy, so to speak, to, to escape it. Today, you can't really um, look at music in Iran in those terms anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, the there, you know, the it's it's not a lot of musicians who would have been clearly underground um, have now been you know, co-opted into these structures and are either have received permits or are trying to get permits. And um, so that whole, uh, you know, categorization of where the music could exist doesn't apply as much anymore. Another really interesting trend and a shortcoming of my book is um, is the whole notion of, you know, um, female musicians. So when I set out to write this book, I wanted to know, I wanted to write about musicians who were really popular or famous within the public realm, right? So somebody like Hitchcast was widely known. Somebody like Mohsen Namju, uh, you know, even though he was, I mean, he wasn't, he did publish an album officially. So he doesn't, he wasn't always just totally underground. He was underground for a while, then he published an album and then he had to leave. But really who's sort of in the public realm, right? And really widely listened to. And you couldn't really, um, you know, identify somebody who was active and um, within the public realm who uh, it was, you know, if you were to 
choose the most prominent within each of those genres, it was a male musician. There are a lot of female musicians, of course, in Iran who've been very active both in, uh, you know, as instrumentalists and as vocalists. And um, I think they're coming more and more to the fore. And the question of the female voice is becoming more and more uh, pertinent and an issue that the government has to address um, before long, like it has addressed other issues as well. Which, to clarify for our readers, what's the current um, standing rule for that, as people understand it? So it hasn't changed at all in four uh, four decades, which is uh, stunning. When you look at the course of you know the changes in all of the rest of the music, the same thing applies, which is the solo female voice is still forbidden. So bivocal or multivocal is allowed, choirs and so on. Solo female voice to an all female audience is allowed, uh, but you still you know the solo female voice as such is still forbidden. And considering how many developments there have been in the other, in other areas of music, that's of course stunning. And a lot of female musicians are pushing to change that, and they really try in all kinds of you know ways to um, to become part of the you know sort of public musicality of uh, of uh, Tehran and and Iran. Um, there, were, there was some development a few years ago where Mahdi Mohammad Khani was thought to have sung a certain piece solo in a very official concert at Talor Vahdat. And so there's newspaper headlines the next day saying the first time since the Islamic Republic, you know, in the Islamic Republic that a female sung solo. She actually retracted that, um, uh, but then it wasn't very clear um, there was this whole ambiguity around that, and um, the supreme leader was called to respond. Well, what is you know what is the stance of of the you know of the of um, the Rahbari Jumhuri Islami on this? And the spokesperson for the supreme leader said, in and of itself, he doesn't think that it's problematic, but as long as it's within certain Islamic you know frameworks and so on. So just nice ambiguity. (laughs) Once again, I mean, like leaving so much ambiguity on it that nobody has the, uh, you know, whatever it takes, the risk, you know, to actually do something about it. Nahid, um, we want to, we don't want to keep you for too long. So can I can I can I can I can I put a plug for my uh, podcast on SoundCloud? It's called um, it's ten songs that define modern Iran. I'm not 100 percent sure, but it's something like that. Uh, it's on SoundCloud, and basically the you know the interview that we had today, I sort of it's it's a sort of sonic form of my book in a much 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 more condensed version. Okay. Great, so we'll link that. You can find that at gemmc.com. Uh, once again, this is uh, Nahid Siamdust. She has published her book, Soundtrack of the Revolution, The Politics of Music in Iran. So that's at Stanford University Press. Feel free to check it out. Buy it and read it is what we mean. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, as always to our listeners, if you want to continue the conversation, uh, find us on Facebook and Twitter. So till next time. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.